Please turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm 19. Hear the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. This evening, we are going to start a series, you might say, of going through select portions of the Westminster Larger Catechism as a supplement to what we find in Scripture. So if you have your Trinity hymnals, you can turn with me in the back, if you so desire, to page 940. Page 940, question 2 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Page 940. The question is this, how does it appear there is a God? The answer is, the very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. This evening, I would like to discuss from God's word how it is that God communicates with us. How is it that God speaks to us? There's a lot of confusion out there in the broader world about how God speaks, and I hope to, in some ways, demystify what for many people, is a confusing topic. Broadly, there are two different categories. There is the general speech of God, or the broad speech of God. There is also the redemptive speech of God. These are two different kinds of speech. I want to talk about each one in turn. First, the the general or broad speech, 
And secondly, the more redemptive speech. Finally, I want us to ask, or I want to illustrate to you why this is more important than you might think. First, the broad speech, or the general speech. The text of Psalm 19 is actually laid out in a very clear way. There are three movements of the text, verses 1 through 6, talk about God's general speech in creation. Verses 7 through 11 talk about God's redemptive speech in the law of God. And finally, verses 12 through 14 talk about the need for redemption. The need for redemption. In the first part, the general speech of God, you can find, you can see in verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. That name God is in Hebrew El. It is the general name of God that you find throughout Scripture. But beginning in verse 7, there's a shift to the law. In verse 7, it says the law of the Lord. The word Lord there is the covenant name of God that he reveals to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, Yahweh. The whole movement of the passage goes like this. Creation, in verses 1 through 6, then God's word, redemptive word, redemption, then finally in verses 12 through 14, our sin and our need to be cleansed, to be redeemed. That's how the whole passage is laid out. So let's look at verses 1 through 6 very quickly. The general speech of God, this is often called the general revelation. That means the way God has communicated to us. He has communicated to us in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. It reveals to us, nature reveals to us certain knowledge. It says in verse 2, day to day it pours out speech. God is speaking through creation, night to night reveals knowledge. There is true knowledge that comes through creation, through what we see in the world. Not only that, but in verse 3, everyone hears. Everyone hears this speech. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. This general broad speech of God in nature is a speech that everyone hears. There is no one deaf to it. And thus, everyone has, in some sense, the true knowledge of God. Here, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The natural world is declaring or communicating knowledge of God. Now, what is it saying? What is it that this natural communication, this natural world is saying? It's saying that there is a God. It is saying that This hasn't happened by accident, that there is a maker, there is a designer, that there is someone who made the world. Now, I know, I know, 
Just like you know that there are plenty of people who say, I don't know there's a God. There are plenty of people in our culture who say there is no God, and they say it very confidently. They say it very loudly. They probably even say it from positions of authority and power. But what Scripture would have us to believe is that they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They are suppressing the truth that is clearly revealed and the knowledge which God has implanted by nature of creation, but also by nature of a moral conscience, a sense of right and wrong that he has put within us. God has put within us. In fact, the Westminster Larger Catechism, I believe, it said that the light of nature in the works of creation, what does it mean by the light of nature? I believe what it's saying is that God has created us in his image, and therefore we have a true sense that there is a God and that he is covenantal, he has a moral law. We are to abide by that law. Verses 5 and 6 tell us something further of general revelation. It tells us of the sun that comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. A bridegroom leaving his chamber. This is a picture not only of beauty. A bridegroom might be an attractive image, but also an image of order. God is a God of order. Now, Beauty is not one of his attributes that people, uh, theologians, ascribe to God because God is not a created thing. God is not beautiful in that sense. Creation is beautiful. It tells us that we have a God of order, but beauty is not a specific attribute because God is not a created being. But his world that he has created is a creation of beauty because God is a God of order. As it says here in verse 5, The the son comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. Like a strong man, runs its course with joy. It has a course. It's rising from the end of the heavens. It's circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. There are some historians, when studying Western civilization, remark, and I would agree with them, that the scientific revolution that happened in the West had as its assumption that we live in a world of order because God is a God of order. We can study the natural world. We can study creation because God himself is a God of law, of order, and of logic. It had Christian presuppositions. Let me say one last thing about the broad speech of God. It is sufficient to tell us that there is a God. But it's not sufficient to tell us the way of salvation. It is not sufficient to tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ, that we not only need to be redeemed, but how it is that we are redeemed. For that, we need God's redemptive speech. Verses 7 through 11 talk about the law of God. God's law. You can just look at some of the first lines. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. What are these things? The law, testimony, precepts. What are these things? These are God's covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law of God that he revealed to his people. 
God gave us his law, particularly in the first five books of the Bible, the law. It is desirable. If you noticed all the positive attributes that are listed here, it's desirable, it's rewarding, it's more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Now, immediately, we run up against the cultural criticism of the Bible because, as you know, many people will say in our society, well, how can you really be free? How can you really be free if you have these constraints, if you have laws, if you believe in a God of laws? And how can you really be free to express yourself? How can you be free to do what you want to do and be whoever you want to be? How can you be that in uh, Christianity? Because it's a, it's a religion of laws. That's one of the criticisms. And Christianity, and I think the Bible, would have us reply that we are, by nature, because we are made in God's image, we are only truly free when we are obeying the law. The law, in other words, the law does not lead us away from freedom. God's law leads us to real freedom. It leads us to real purpose. Or to put it in a different way, is a fish really free when it's not in the water? Fish says, I want to be free. I want to jump out of the water. Is it really free if it's not in the water? Or is a ship really free if there is no rudder on the ship, if there's no way to, to control the ship? Is it really free on the ocean without any rudder? Is it really free? In the same way, you are designed by God to live in perfect fellowship and harmony, not only with him but with each other. When we abandon God's law, We're not abandoning it for the sake of freedom. Rather, when we abandon God's law, it does not lead to our freedom and human flourishing. It leads to destruction. Here's another complaint by the culture that I think our text would have us reply in a firm way. The culture will say that faith is is a leap in the dark. Faith is is living on something you don't really know to be true. It's, it's darkness. But here in verse 8, if you notice in verse 8, it says that the commandments of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Scripture's testimony is that faith is a way of seeing. Faith is a way to see reality. It's a way to see what is really there. It's not a way, faith is not a way that dar- something that darkens our knowledge, but faith is a way of seeing true reality. It's like a lens that you put on and you can see for the first time what's really there. It's a way of interpreting and understanding what God has made. Therefore, it's not something that's a leap in the dark. It's not something that darkens our knowledge but rather it helps us to see. By the way, have you ever been around somebody who has a self-destructive tendency? Maybe they have an addiction. Maybe they have problems with substance abuse. Maybe they have, they erupt with anger, outraged with anger, and it's tearing their family apart. It's maybe tearing their friends apart, and everybody can see it but them. Have you ever known anyone like that? I have known people like that. 
Everybody can see it. Now, why is it that they can't see? Why is it that they cannot see what is so obvious to everyone around them? I would submit to you it's because they do not have the eyes of faith. They don't have the eyes to see what God's law says because perhaps they're ignorant of it. Perhaps they haven't been convicted of their own sin. Perhaps God's spirit hasn't plucked their heart in a way that enables them to see what's really wrong with them. You see, it doesn't darken the knowledge. It's shining light into the dark places of our life. It's like a lamp that helps us to see. Do you know that? Do you know that it's like a lamp? God's redemptive speech is like a lamp. Verses 12 through 14 moves into our need for redemption. We've spoken about the broad speech of God. We've spoken about the redemptive speech of God. But there, there is this urge or sense of longing to be redeemed that comes out in verses 12 through 14. I don't know if longing is the best way to describe it, but consider this. Right after the section on the law, the law shows how, how much we fail to measure up. The law is perfect, but we're not. Therefore, the psalmist moves directly into who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults in verse 12. I don't think that means that he thinks he is innocent. I prefer the NIV translation there that says, forgive my hidden faults. In other words, I think the psalmist knows that he indeed has sins into the dark crevices of his own heart, perhaps even that he can't see himself. Remember in verse 6 how it says, the, the sun, there's nothing hidden from its heat. There's nothing hidden from the heat of the sun in the same way. There's nothing hidden. There is no sin hidden from the eyes of God. There is no way that you could possibly hide your sinful, not only behavior, but even your thoughts. God knows those things. It's futile to try to hide it. What you might need to do, perhaps what you should do, or maybe even what you must do, is to ask the Lord to convict you of sins in your own life in order that you might be able to see them, to repent of them, and to put it before the Lord, to ask forgiveness. The law searches the hidden parts of the soul, and it's the psalmist's desire that sin would not have reign or dominion over him. But how is that possible? How are you and I, how are you and I meant to have freedom from the curse of sin in this life? I believe this points us to the New Testament's teaching. There's one particular word in here that I think directly points us to the New Testament's teaching. Before I tell you what it is, consider this. Verses 1 through 6 are about creation. Verses 7 through 11 about God's redeeming speech, the law of God. Verses 12 through 14 talk about the sin that's in our life and in our heart. Where is all of this leading? Creation, redemptive speech, sin, It's leading us to the only way that we can be redeemed. That comes out in verse 14, the word acceptable. 
That might not sound like a big word or an important word to you, but it's a very important word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. That word acceptable is the same language in Leviticus 22, verses 17 through 20, that talk about acceptable sacrifices before the Lord. In God's law, particularly in the book of Leviticus, there are laws regarding what are acceptable sacrifices. Of course, we need an unblemished sacrifice because God is a holy God. God is a pure God. He does not stand in need of his creation. But we are sinful. The only way that that gap could be bridged is through an acceptable sacrifice. Well, who could that sacrifice be? What could that sacrifice possibly be? Doesn't that lead us directly to the New Testament where we have the perfect keeper of God's law? Jesus Christ is the perfect keeper and fulfiller of the law. He's the one who's the perfect sacrifice, the perfect acceptable sacrifice, the only true acceptable sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, only the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only acceptable sacrifice. He's the final word, the final goal of our life, the final purpose in life. We should live for his glory. Having said all of that, I would like to now give you a few reasons why this is more than you might think it is. God's speech to you is more than you might think. Here are a few considerations. The first one, I have to admit, I've taken a little bit from John Piper. I think we should be careful when we ask the question, how is it that God speaks to me personally? That word personally. We live in a very evangelistic culture, evangelical culture, where we want a personal, personal Lord. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad question, but here's the thing. God does speak to you personally in the word of God. He does speak to your problems. He really does. He really, really does speak to your individual problems and needs through the Word of God. He does speak. He has spoken. The Word of God is living and active. It speaks today. Christ himself speaking through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, And consider also this, that the word that we have is a sure and certain word. The word of God is infallible and inspired. But the feelings that we might have, the passing thoughts, perhaps dreams that we have, these things are fallible, they're uncertain, they're impressions. But what we have in Christ and in his word is the rock-solid infallible, direct speech of God with endless treasures. We have more. We have more revelation. We have more speech of God than any of the old covenant believers did. So we should be careful, I think, because I don't think we need more messages from God. What we need is for our eyes to be open, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see what God has already said. 
We need to be able to digest what has already been said. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2 say that long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. What we have is fully sufficient and complete. Christ is the final prophet, the final word. Here's something else to consider, that this word is fully sufficient for your needs. 2 Peter verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says that God's divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. In other words, let me say that again, God, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Everything that we need for a godly life has been given to us. Everything that we could possibly need has been given to us. Therefore, what we have is fully sufficient. We should be careful about desiring and craving something else than what God has given to us. It is fully sufficient, authoritative, and clear about how to be saved and fully sufficient for a life of godliness. Here are a couple of other things to consider. I can hear someone asking, well, how does God speak, though, to the decisions I have to make? I'm thinking particularly of young people making decisions about careers, making decisions about potential mates, things like that. A few thoughts. First, 1 Thessalonians, I know this is a little outside the purview of the passage, but please bear with me. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this, that this is the will of God, your sanctification. What God wants for you, his plan for you, is that you would be sanctified, that you would die unto sin, that you would live unto righteousness, and that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. That is what God wants for you. Beware of people who might make laws, and I, here I'm thinking, um, particularly I have, a, I have one example in mind, I'm thinking of Martin Luther, where there is no particular pa- passage that would say it's a law. So here's the example. Martin Luther, and many of the other reformers, by the way, they ended up marrying. That might not sound like a big deal, but at the time, there were laws on the books that said if you were a priest, you couldn't be married. Now, where does it say that in Scripture? Where does it say that you can't be married? Well, there's a man-made law. There is liberty if God has not spoken and told us a specific thing that we must not do. There's liberty. He, Luther would, one of the things that he did would knock down the secular sacred distinction. He said that you could be glorifying to God as a sweeper, a janitor. That's not a direct quote. I think I'm paraphrasing. But there are many ways that you can glorify God. There are many ways that you can bring honor and glory to God. There are many ways that you can be sanctified. I should say, the way you are sanctified is through the means of grace, through God's word, through prayer, through the sacraments. But what I mean to say is there are many vocations in which you could be sanctified. 
So God gives us liberty. But secondly, and finally, I would have us to consider this. Perhaps the point is that we would have faith. Perhaps the point is not that you would know all of the answers you would like to know about your future, about how things are going to work out in your own life, about what your career is going to look like, about what your family is going to look like. I'm not saying those are not important questions. Those are very important questions. But perhaps one of the point is that you would have faith to trust in God without knowing the future. Perhaps that's part of the point in the sufficiency of Scripture. That everything that you need to know, God has revealed. So let us trust in Him that His Word will do what He claims it will do. That it will produce in us the godliness that He desires. May we give our days and our nights to following the Lord Jesus Christ in the path that He has laid out for us in Scripture. May that be the lamp that shines in the dark place. May that be the faith. May the word of God be the lamp that is shining in our life to Christ. And may he be the one that we trust and rest on in our days of darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you for the fullness of your revelation, for the fullness of your revelation to us in your creation, but also the fullness of your revelation to us in Scripture. We thank you that it's fully sufficient to accomplish the purposes that you have for us in this life. We pray for forgiveness, for seeking other ways in which we might hear special messages. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be content, that the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, that we would be content with the lot that you have given us. Particularly, we would be content with the revelation that you have given to us. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glories, the riches that are there. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. I pray that our hearts would value your revelation. I pray, too, you would give us wisdom for where you have spoken and where you have remained silent, where we have a scriptural mandate and where we have the law of liberty. Confess that it is not always clear, but we do pray for wisdom that you would help us to exegete your word carefully, that we would be like the Bereans who searched the scriptures. We pray that you would give us a spirit of discernment. Father, give us faith. May this faith be not something that leads us away from your law, which would not be a faith at all, Lord, but may it be a faith that draws us to your word, draws us to the final word to the Lord Jesus Christ. By his spirit, please empower us to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness, to bring you glory by conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to our crucified, risen, and coming again Savior. We praise you for the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.